0: I'm really excited to start a new sermon series today in the Gospel of Luke. I know we didn't finish up Colossians and may still do so in the future, but I've, really want, I've wanted to preach Luke for a long time now um, in its entirety. I've preached sections of the book before. And with it being the first se- Sunday of Advent, I thought, today's the right day to begin. And so I hope you'll enjoy going through Luke with me. Before I read the passage, let's bow our heads in prayer one last time. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would meet us now in your word. We walk through the doors of this room from all sorts of backgrounds, from places of belief and non-belief and used to believe and trying to believe again. For some of us, Father, there was a time when you felt very close to us and now we are, we are wondering where you've gone you seem a million miles away right now. Have you you left us or have we run away from you or is it some type of combination? For some of us here, Father, we're looking for one word, one sentence that would give us hope in the midst of a world that seems to be very dark and depressing and despairing. Some of us here today are so comfortable in our wealth that we have lost our our need of you in our life, and we live under the delusion of self-sufficiency every day. So wherever we find ourselves in the room today, Father, help us to see that no matter where we come from, we are all the same, and that we are all a bigger mess than we even know. And if we understand ourselves rightly, we are all in need of your grace every second. And the hardest thing at all for us to believe is that you love us so deeply and long to be gracious to us, deeper than we can ever imagine. And so help us to believe that today. Help us to see how you've loved us through the person and work of your son, Jesus. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts of faith to listen. We pray in Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Amen. The opening line of any book is really, it's key. The opening line has to be written so as to grab the reader's attention. Words that we use to describe the opening lines include vivid, electrifying, tone setting. Some authors say that the opening line of a book is the hardest of all the sentences to pen, and other authors actually say that mysteriously it writes itself, it comes to you. But what everyone's position on opening lines is, I think what everyone must agree on is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Or, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much, and were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense, Or he's already been mentioned once. How do you mention Albert Camus twice in a worship service? I don't know, but or mother died today, or maybe yesterday. I can't be sure. If first lines are so important, why does Luke begin this way? We're gonna read it in just a moment. Well why does he begin what I would argue is the most important Important book, maybe that's ever been written in the history of mankind. Because Luke is writing for us not one, but two volumes here. The Gospel of Luke is volume one of the life of Christ. Volume two is the story of the early church, and that is found in the book of Acts. 27% of the New Testament is written by Mark in these two volumes. So if he's writing the most important thing that's ever been written... Why does it begin with such a decided lack of flair? And the answer is simply that the paper was expensive. If you have ever had the opportunity to look at an ancient scroll, what you will notice is there's not a single inch of blank space. The the, uh, papyrus, which were the... Plant-like, uh, papyrus were the sheets that they wrote on in that time. There's a paper of their day made from the papyrus plant. Papyrus was actually quite expensive in the first century. So they couldn't spare any, you know, any of it. They had to fill it up. And so if you look at a scroll, an ancient scroll is written from top to bottom, front and back side. It's completely full. Uh, what that means is then there would be no title page as we normally have in our books. Neither would there be an acknowledgement page where the author says thank you to all the people who made the book possible. Instead, that would be included at the very top of the first page of the scroll. And that is what we have here today. Uh, This is Luke's prefatory dedication to a gentleman whose name is Theophilus. We may talk about him later. And we look at it there in your bulletin, and the English is broken up into four verses, but actually in the Greek, it's one very stylized, very ornate sentence that serves as his introduction to the book. And while it lacks flair and electricity, it's very valuable to us because it helps us understand how the gospel was compiled, and it gives us confidence in the gospel's historical reliability. Luke is a physician. He is also a a historian. And what he is saying to us here is that I did not make this stuff up. This is not a fabrication. This is not a work of fiction. This is not a legend. This is based on surviving living eyewitnesses. And so we read in Luke 1.1. These words... (laughs) Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty Of the things that you have been taught. Thanks be to God for the word of the Lord. Whenever I meet somebody who says that they doubt Christianity, my response is always the same. My response is always, what part? Christianity is a large, multifaceted religion and worldview. What are your hang ups? Do you doubt that God created the world in six 24-hour days? Well, if that's the case, you might be interested to know that quite a few Christians also doubt that as well. Do you uh, doubt that the Exodus took place in 1446 BC? Are your questions about theological or historical minutiae? Or do you just doubt that God is real and exists at all? So what part are you doubting? Uh, what you find is that most people have a rather nebulous view about, about where they have their questions. And one of the first steps that we take in order to have winsome engagement with another person is to help them clarify what it is they're, they're actually skeptical about. Having said all that, I have met another group of people, and this is the people that I would really like to speak to this morning, a group of people who know exactly what their hang-ups are. And we read them just now in these four verses. There are people who are not sure the Gospels are historically reliable documents. And if that's you this morning, you're not alone. Here's a a fact. It's a fact that Christians should know and we should be honest about. This fact, the fact is that virtually every religion department and every major university in the West denies the historical reliability of the Gospels. When Luke says, as he does here, that I researched all of this carefully, Mr. Theopolis, so that you can have certainty of the events in almost every university in every part of the Western world and hemisphere, uh, they all believe that that's a lie. What accounts for this? Well, about 300 years ago, uh, a handful of German philosophers... They weren't German theologians. They they really weren't guys who loved the Bible deeply. They were philosophers. And they began to put forward the idea which we call historical criticism. And in a very famous phrase, they said this, that the goal of historical criticism was to discover the world behind the text. See, the text of the Gospels, they don't describe to us the real first century world. No, much of what's described in the Gospels is fabricated. But when you read an ancient document like the New Testament, if you're smart enough, you can follow the clues to determine, to determine the community that came, uh, from which the story came. So Luke might, as he does throughout, say blah, 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 blah. But much of that stuff didn't happen. But there was a community behind the story. There was a group of people who had an agenda... Who decided to tell the story in this certain kind of way. Presumably to validate themselves or to validate their own group's practices. Um, They write the story with their own agenda. And while you can't then tell what is the real world of the first century. You can determine the agenda of the people that are behind the text. This led to a very important dichotomy which Newsweek and Time Magazine oftentimes likes to pick up this time of the year. Uh, The dichotomy is the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Anybody ever heard of that distinction before? Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. The Jesus of history is the person that scholars are reconstructing. And he is a person whom we do not know and we do not love. Um, They admit that there was probably a guy by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He probably lived in the first century. And he was definitely not anything like the one that is portrayed in our Gospels. He might have been married to Mary Magdalene. He might have been, uh, he was probably a a sage and a prophet who had profound things to say. But he uh, is not the miracle-working divine son of God. That is the Christ of faith. And that is a person that we believe in. But everybody knows that that person is just largely fabricated by the early church communities. All these ideas, and I apologize if this is a little too theology wonk, um, but when I look at the uh, verses 1 through 4, I think it's important that we kind of delve into this. And all of these ideas were kind of helped along the way by the belief that the Gospels that we have were written rather late. So the Gospels, they might have been written in 150 uh, 150 AD. And so the gap in time between the events of Jesus' life gave space for people to transmit and shape the stories for their own purposes and agenda. Again, they would give us accounts of the life that are not historically credible. Um, They believed... You know, if you have a late date of the Gospels, lots of things can happen in between. Most of this uh, summary I got from Eric Irwin, who is a Presbyterian pastor in Seattle, and his son is a doctoral student in New Testament studies. And it's kind of the summary of where we stand in uh, in scholarship today. And so what is our response to this? The other thing I failed to mention is that the German philosophers 300 years ago believed that miracles were impossible. Now that we are enlightened by modern science, we know that conclusively dead men don't rise and five loaves plus two fish doesn't feed 5,000 people. We know that. And so all of the miracles in in the Gospels are fabrications. What we have to really do is kind of get back to the historical kernel on which they are based, but we can't, believe, we can't believe any of that. And so what is our response to all of this? Well, there's a growing body of research today that, deter- that tells us that the Gospels actually weren't written very late. At least not Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, we have today, I would estimate, probably 1,000 times more manuscript fragments and evidence than they had 300 years ago that allow us all of these little fragments that exist that were written at different times in church history, allow us to, through a fairly scientific process, to determine when was the original document written. And by virtue of all of the manuscript evidence, the majority of which has come out and been found in the last, I'd say, 30 years, we've been able to determine that the Gospels say the Gospel of Luke was probably written around 65 AD, or in other words, only 30 years after the, the life of Christ. Jesus died in 33 AD, we think, and Luke was written around 65 AD. Mark was written before Luke in probably 55 to 60 AD. And so that gap of 120 years that they thought existed most likely does not exist. What this means is uh, there have been plenty of eyewitnesses to interview and to talk with. There was a recent book that was published by uh, a scholar who analyzed the first century population sizes of Galilee, Jerusalem, and the other villages and cities that Jesus visited during his ministry in antiquity and looked at what would be the life expectancy of a villager in that day in in Roman Palestine. Here's what he concluded, that there would have been approximately 60,000 potential eyewitnesses who saw or experienced Jesus in his person And of those 60,000 or so potential eyewitnesses, between 18,000 of them and 20,000 of them would have still been alive after 30 years, which leads him to this conclusion. He says, As is evident from the life tables, a fairly large number of them would have been available for Luke or others to interview, just as he says that he does. How about you think about it in these terms? Suppose a book came out today that claimed in 1988, a flying saucer landed in a remote town in Canada, and 5,000 people in that town saw the flying saucer when it landed. How would the majority of people respond to that piece of news? Well, some people would say, aha, of course, I've always believed there's life on other planets. And so it sounds perfectly credible and true. Other people would say, there's no such thing as flying saucers or aliens. I don't think that that could ever happen. But the majority of people would say, 5,000 in the town? And it was only 30 years ago? Some Some of them may have died, but a lot of them still have to be around. Why don't we go and ask them? Friends, that's, what the, that's exactly what Luke says. He says, Theophilus, this history that I'm giving you is based on living eyewitnesses. Living eyewitnesses meant that, there, that he was being publicly accountable for the things that he wrote. Because anybody could go and talk to the eyewitnesses and fact check his historical data. Now, I know that is not the story you hear if you go to a public university like I did. I remember taking a freshman religion class at the University of Oklahoma, and here's what they tell you happened. They say that the Gospels are basically a telephone game. We know, we know how the telephone game works. You, you, tell the, you tell somebody next to you a story with several details in it. Then they turn and they whisper to the next person, and it goes on. By the time it gets 10 people down the line, it bears absolutely little to no resemblance to the story that was first told. And that's kind of what they taught us, is that the Gospels are a telephone game. And maybe the Gospels started out with a kernel of historical truth, but as it gets passed on, it gets embellished and it's misshaped. Is that a possible answer to the Gospels? Yes. Yes. Is that a probable answer to the Gospels? Actually, no. So one of the other major steps that we have made over the last 25 to 30 years is we have a very good idea of how ancient people transmitted information through their oral storytelling and their traditions. We know way more than, say, German philosophers 300 years ago knew about how they did this in the first century. And they, they, they did it you know, through oral, oral storytelling. Because only 10% of the population would have been literate. I should say only 10% of the male population would have been literate. Nobody, virtually no women in the first century would have been lit, literate. And so what they would do, because they didn't have printed books. Or newspapers or television or radio. What they would do is they would appoint official storytellers in their villages. That is, people who were designated as the leader and sort of curator of the historical information. And they were the ones who were entrusted with the telling of the stories. For example, how would this work? Uh, As an example, some great event would occur. The emperor would come to visit. Or an earthquake shakes your town A battle wages in the fields. Within a day or two, the story would be told all around the village and it would settle into an agreed upon form. Everybody would know the story, but some of the better storytellers in the village would be recognized by the others as the official people to tell it. And that's what they would do. They wouldn't change or modify the story because if they did, all of the villagers were there to set them straight. Probably, if I could give a modern equivalent, probably the closest equivalent we would have to this is when you get together as a family at Christmas time, and say you dads, you tell the story. A story that everybody in the family knows. If you deviate from the material, or I mean, this happens to me all the time, I'll start to tell the story, and my kids are like, Dad, it didn't happen that way. And we would all recognize, they would then tell what really happened. Uh, but they were, they were their own, they, were my accountab- they are my accountability. You know, check up, you know, feedback loop to make sure what I'm telling is true. Everybody knew the story. You couldn't change the story any more than you could change the national anthem's lyrics today. And so that's actually something new that we've learned about the world that Jesus lived in. So when Luke, as I find my spot in my notes, when Luke went around the villages of Palestine and Syria in the second half of the first century, listening to the stories that were told by the accredited storytellers, he calls them in verse 2. Did you notice? The servants of the word. He would know, listening to these accredited storytellers, that they were in touch with solid, reliable evidence that went right back to the early events. Let's talk very briefly about the other uh, objection that German philosophers had. And that objection we'll use as a segue into a series of further objections that people have. Uh, we know that miracles cannot exist. We know that dead men can't rise and water can't be changed to wine. Um, I just, I, I doubt, they said, we doubt that that is a historical credible possibility. And let me give you something profound to think about. Um, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is, how do you know? How do you know that miracles can't happen? I mean, how do you know? But the second thing is, uh, for you to think about is, you cannot doubt belief A, except from a position of faith and belief B. for example, If you doubt Christianity because there can't be one true religion, which is a super common objection today, you must recognize that this statement, you know, belief B, is itself an act of faith. No one can prove empirically that there can't be one true religion. And that's not actually a universal truth that everybody agrees with. I mean, if you were to go to the Middle East today and you looked at a bunch of Muslims and said there can't be one true religion, they'd look back at you and say, why not? Of course there can be. And it was given to us by Muhammad. The reason you doubt Christianity's belief A is because you actually hold to an unprovable belief B. Some people, another common uh, uh, objection that people have is some people say, I don't believe in Christianity because I can't accept the existence of moral absolutes. I believe that everyone should determine moral truth for himself or herself. But again, is that a statement you can prove um, to someone who doesn't share that belief? There's no empirical proof for such a a position. It is a leap of faith. Well, you say, but my doubts are not based on a leap of faith. Actually, I just have no belief about God one way or another I simply don't feel the need for God, and I'm not interested in thinking about God, which is, again, a very common thing you hear from people. It's just like, I don't, I don't really care. But he, even hidden beneath that belief or that feeling is a very modern American idea that the existence of God can be a matter of indifference whether or not it's emotionally you know, meeting your need. That's a fairly dangerous proposition. You're kind of betting your life that no God exists or he wouldn't hold you accountable for your beliefs or behavior if you didn't feel the need for him. Uh, That may or may not be true. But again, it is quite a leap of faith. So on the back table, we should have a copy. Do we have a copy of Tim Keller's Reason for God? Um, Such a good book. We do have some back there. Um, If you are here this morning and you want to explore those kinds of questions, we'll give you that book for free. (laughs) Um, We'll give, we'll put out as many copies as we can for anybody to read that book because Tim Keller, it's one of my favorites of all time. And he says this, so helpful. He says, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts. And then to ask yourself what reasons you have for believing those. Like, how do you know that your doubts or your beliefs underneath your doubts are true? He goes on, it's not fair to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own, but that is frequently what happens. To be fair, you must also doubt your doubts. What a great phrase! To be fair, you must doubt your doubts. And my thesis is this, that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not nearly as solid as they first appeared. Hopefully that made sense. That's a long quote. <laughs> um so yeah, this sermon has been a little too theology wonk, and it, it probably would be, serve as better as a lecture, but it all builds to this, a story that I want to tell you. Dick Lucas, he ended up, he a very, um, very famous British pastor. He, some years ago, he was talking to a skeptic of Christianity, and the guy kept, came to him, very amiable fellow, and he said something like this. He said, I'd love to believe in God. I really would, but it isn't... Intellectually possible for me. I guess I could believe in God if somebody would just give me a watertight argument, a watertight proof without holes inside of it, one from which there is no escaping. Then I could believe in God. I'd believe in God as long as God would sort of write it up in the sky for me. And Lucas listened to him for a second and he responded this way He said, I don't think God has given us a watertight argument. But what if he's given us a watertight person? Because that's what Christianity is all about. Um, Is there someone who's here and listening? um, Or someone who will later listen to the sermon on the internet? Are you waiting for a perfect argument? I've tried to give arguments this morning. And I know they're not perfect. But what if God decides he's not trying to bring you the perfect argument. He's trying to bring you He is, in fact, trying to bring you the perfect person in his own son. And so what I really like you to do, I guess, I want you to have confidence as we go through the Gospel of Luke that these are at least historically credible enough for you to examine them. And what I want you to do then is is just pay close attention to the person we get in the pages of the story because I... And brothers and sisters, isn't it true we? We find this man remarkable. We find him so beautiful. We find him so compelling. And I I really believe if somebody will just read the Gospels with an open heart, they will discover the very same. You're going to see Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke reaching out over and over again to the poor, to, to women, to children, to prostitutes, to lepers, to Gentiles who were collaborators with the enemy. Uh, You're going to see this man being, for that day and age, remarkably open um, and inclusive of people. Uh, To a a crazy degree, a revolutionary degree. Nobody did these things. On the other hand, you're going to find on every page, this guy is fairly megalomaniacal. (laughs) He makes all kinds of just... Bonkers claims He claims that he is going to be the one to judge the world on the last day. He claims he alone has the authority to forgive sins. He claims he is equal with the Father. So it's a very strange matrix you discover in Jesus. You have megala, however you say that word maniacal claims and yet great tenderness and compassion and humility those things normally don't go together in a human being. I mean, the people who claim that they themselves are God, there's a long list of them in human history, and basically all of them ended up in mental institutions. (laughs) They didn't show a life that that was like this. A life that That was so compelling to the men and women who followed him that hundreds of Jews, Jews who were the very last people in the world to believe that God could come in human flesh, would drop everything to follow him and to stake their lives on him. And so here's what I, yes, as I said, I want you to know these stories are credible. When Luke writes, I did not make this stuff up, this is not a fabrication, it's not a fiction. At the very least, give his gospel a chance. The records about jesus life are credible, and he is real. Um, I would say to you also, brothers and sisters, that I believe the Gospel of Luke is a great time to invite friends um, non Christian friends and any kind of friends to church i mean we 're going to go through the coolest gospel out there and I really hope you will do that. Um, You'll bring people in and and allow them to see and hear the greatest story in the history of the world. Little Red Riding Hood takes her goodies to grandmother's house is not a story. Little Red Riding Hood takes her, her grandmother goodies and the big bag wolf chased her and a woodcutter saved her. That is a story. What's the difference? A story must have... An antagonist, antagonistic forces that are, uh, you know, directed against the protagonists. And the story must have a hero. And what is our story as human beings? What is our antagonist? Well, we already spoke about it earlier in the sermon, or early in the service. Death is our antagonist. The devil is our antagonist. And the sin, our sin, and the curse and penalty of our sin is our antagonist. And who is our hero? (laughs) King Jesus, the babe of the Virgin Mary. He has come to defeat them all. I would say to you that the gospels of Jesus Christ are intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. In every worldview, you need both components. You need intellectually credible and you need existentially satisfying. It's going to be a great deal of fun, I think, to go through the Gospels with you. May the Lord bless us, and we do. Amen.